Hello and welcome to Women in Post, a podcast and web series for women in post-production by Women in Post-Production. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with Caitlin. It is kind of a controversial genre because it's putting this stuff on TV, kind of glorifying the wrong aspects of humanity. So where did your interest in post come from? Um, I started to gravitate towards editing really young. When I was, I think, a junior in high school, I took an independent study with the photography teacher there, and she was able to get an educational copy of Final Cut for me. And I started to teach myself Final Cut back then. But at the time when I was going into college, I still thought that I wanted to work in production. Um, I was really interested in special effects makeup specifically, and I thought that I wanted to do that. But when I went to Emerson and I started going on student film shoots, I learned very quickly that I don't really like being on set. Um, I don't like the hurry up and wait of it is what they call it. It's like, okay, you know, it's a mad rush to get something done in 20, 30 minutes, and then you have nothing to do for four hours. And I just started thinking about, you know, my work life. And, you know, if I'm going to be putting in long hours somewhere, I want to be able to be doing something the entire time. So I kind of very quickly gravitated towards editing exclusively after that. Mm-hmm. Now, for somebody who has maybe never been on set before, like, what's happening during the wait time? Not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, why no. is everybody waiting? Everyone is waiting um, because you, I mean, there are a myriad of reasons. Um, you know, they could be setting up the next shot. They might have to put a new reel of film in the camera if they're shooting on film, which... I'm old enough that we usually still were at that point, (laughs) even though it was a student production. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's any number of reasons where you have to wait for them to be ready to start filming again. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can sometimes it can take a really long time. So as a makeup person, once I had a cast member ready to go, then I was just kind of waiting until, uh, you know, someone needed a touch up or I had to get someone ready for a new scene or something like that. And it just wasn't active enough for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you started in post in college? I did. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever I had to do group projects, I always tried to take the editor role. I would get pushed into doing other things sometimes, but I never enjoyed it as much. And then I had the great benefit and privilege of being from New York City. So during the summer, I started doing internships also really early on. Like I think I the first one I got was after my sophomore year, and that was a post-production house. Uh, who initially brought me on for free, but eventually started paying me, which was very kind. And uh, I did several more at small kind of micro budget documentary companies. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me gravitating towards documentary and unscripted work as well. 
Um, and I saw from, I did a little snooping into your background. So you made a big move from New York to California, right? Yeah, I moved here about four years ago. It was kind of a decision between my husband and I. Uh, he's an assistant editor. And, you know, I I love New York. I'm always going to love New York. I'm from there. Um, and I, ne- I probably never would have come out here without him. But our thinking was, you know, this is a much bigger pond in mm-hmm. terms of the kinds of opportunities that are available just because there's so much more work happening here and so many different types of projects happening here. And, you know, we were at a stage in our life where we didn't have any children or a mortgage or, you know, there was nothing really keeping us in one place. And we decided, you know, if we're going to try this ever, we should do it now. And it's worked out. I mean, we've both uh, had some really great opportunities here after we got over the initial hump of having to kind of regenerate a work network and like like not really knowing anybody or having anything lined up in advance. Mm-hmm. So once we got over that, we've been very fortunate to be pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does the feel inside of an editing room feel different in California as compared to New York, or is it pretty much the same? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure the culture in the room is different, but the, um, I hope I don't offend anyone by saying this, I think people appreciate the East Coast work ethic. Um, I think East Coast people are a little more aggressive and driven. I definitely had to get used to not being in a hurry all the time when I I initially moved out here. Um, I would say I kind of have felt that the the gender discrimination is a little worse out here, Um, probably because the industry is a lot older and kind of more set in its ways out here. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas New York always felt kind of um, DIY a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I used to work in the Fed. So like those roots are ancient. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're familiar with the myth of Sisyphus. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like, you know, always trying to push that boulder uphill and you never get very far because it's just such an old culture. Yeah. Some things out here are definitely better though. Like uh, I also feel like my, my craft is much more respected and little things like people, people value like the lunch hour more out here. (laughs) Whereas like in New York, if you actually left the office for a full hour, I think people would kind of look at you sideways. So there, there are small things like that, but it, it, it's kind of pros and cons on, on both sides. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you plan on staying in California? Um, I'm not sure. We're definitely going to be here a couple more years, but it's, it's a tough call. It's actually something that we talk about a lot because, you know, we work jobs that sort of confine us to 
working in one of the two most expensive cities mm-hmm. in the whole country. And even though, you know, we've been able to work steadily and make pretty good money, there are like other life goals that seem kind of impossible to achieve because just because the cost of living is so high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. So, okay. So you are in the unique perspective that you and your husband work in post-production. Like you're the first person I've ever talked to that had that situation. So like, what does yeah. that, what does that <laughs> feel like? I mean, do you guys compete with each other? Do you feel like one career is more like easy to pursue than the other person's career? Like, how does that feel? Um, well, we actually met on a job when we were kids. I mean, it was like my second job out of college, uh, but we've actually never worked together since for whatever reason he's an assistant editor and his skill set is probably much more in demand um like it's uh, it's much harder to find a really strong assistant editor than it is to find a strong editor i don't know why that is but especially now that everything's digital the assistants have become much more technical than creative. Like when I was trying to move up from AE to editor, I still got a lot of kind of junior level editing opportunities um, from the editors that I was working with. And I kind of feel bad for the assistants that are trying to make the jump now because I just feel like those opportunities have kind of gone away because so much of their day-to-day responsibilities are purely technical. Is it like organizing footage and things like that? Yeah. In, in Unscripted, uh, it's a lot of like syncing the cameras with the audio, syncing and grouping Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, because everything is on digital cards now, it's like you're doing so much more media management. Whereas, you know, when I was, when I was training and this isn't even that long ago, I mean, this is less than a decade ago, we were still just putting tapes into a machine, mm-hmm. you know? So the landscape is just so much different. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You have been on so many different shows. Yeah, the bulk of my resume has ended up being kind of in the true crime space. And that's because one of the earliest paying jobs I got was on a show called The First 48, which has been on, I think, over 20 years now. It's kind of crazy that it's still on. But it's a kind of a very straight up verite docu-follow show where they follow homicide detectives. Like um, real homicide detectives? Yeah. For wow. the first 48 hours of their investigation. Um, basically, the whole premise of the show is if they don't get a lead within the first 48 hours, the odds of them ever solving the crime are cut in half. So I started working there when I was very young. I think I was 22 or 23 years old. And I was really fortunate because it was one of the few unscripted unionized jobs in New York City. So, you know, I got union benefits, I had health insurance, 
and the office culture there, they also really focused on promoting people from within. So I almost ended up getting fast-tracked. I was just super focused and I worked really hard and I was able to rise from basically digitizer to editor within four years. Like I, I was editing by 26, which is really unusual. And I kind of hung out there continuing to edit for another about year and a half until I kind of felt really confident and comfortable and also kind of ready to flex my muscles on other things. But because I worked in that space for so long, a lot of the jobs that I got after that kind of ended up still being uh, in the true crime genre, uh-huh. which, is, which is fine. Um, I mean, I enjoy it. But, you know, my mom always jokes that like, can't you work on something where, you know, nobody dies once in a while? (laughs) Like, like when I got the house hunters job, I was there for about nine months, uh, which was really, really great as well. And, you know, you can't have a further departure like genre wise. No. Because it's like this nice, happy thing of, you know, these couples mostly buying a house for the first time. Yeah, so that was a nice little break <laughs> <laughs> well, from from the death. Apology about that. I mean, like, what is it? What is it like to sit and we all know how much time it takes to edit something, and you're sitting there and you're absorbing this content about pretty much horrible things, right? Like, yeah. What does that? What kind of toll did that take on you? Um, it never. It's only really gotten to me. A couple of times. One time I was working on a show about the the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando and we got the, one of the things that we had access to was the body cam footage of the first responders who were like going into this club and trying to get people out, you know, after this horrible mass shooting had occurred. And That material really stuck with me for a long time. Um, And there have been like a handful of other cases I've had to deal with where stuff has kind of really stayed with me. But I think that there is, um, I think there's some sociological value to kind of examining that, that stuff. I mean, it is kind of a controversial genre because, you know, there are plenty of think pieces out there about, you know, is putting this stuff on TV kind of glorifying the wrong aspects of humanity? You know, like, are we glamorizing murderers too much? Or like in the case of The First 48, that show would occasionally get a lot of flack for just kind of the racial politics that are inextractable from everyday police work. Mm-hmm. So it, it's definitely complicated, but at the end of the day, I still think that there is merit to documenting that side of humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has there ever been a time where 
you've been called into like say to testify in court based on like the footage that because you pretty much become an expert right in the things that you're cutting together has that ever happened (laughs) yeah I basically feel like I could never serve on a jury ever again um (laughs) but a lot of the time we would actually when stuff was still on tape once an episode was locked we would actually destroy the footage uh, specifically to avoid just constantly getting bogged down with subpoenas really yeah so are you destroying not original footage right just the footage that was supplied to you yeah exactly gotcha you know we were only receiving copies from the police department so i don't mean to say that any of that stuff got destroyed (laughs) Only only stuff that the production company was filming for the purposes of the show would get destroyed. Okay, that makes sense. Because, I mean, you guys have a job to do and it doesn't involve going to court. Like, that would suck, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Has that ever gotten you out of having having to do, like, jury duty? I've never, even though I've gotten called a couple of times, I've never gotten to the questioning phase. Oh, okay. um, yeah, but I do, I do kind of wait for the day where that becomes relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I got to go to jury duty to, um, you know, they have you sit down and they're going through trying to decide who they're going to pick and they ran out of time and never got to me and I was so upset because I really wanted to do it. Yeah. And everybody else, nobody else wanted to be there. And like, I just really wanted to. And I wish you could volunteer, like, especially as a, as a freelancer, you know, where my schedule fluctuates all the time and I occasionally have downtime, you know, I would love to just be able to go like, all right, like I'm available now. Like, Mm -hmm. let's do it now. You know, like, don't call me in the middle of a show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you've done a lot of these like hardcore, maybe not hardcore, but like, intense shows and, yeah. and you're part of the union right and so is there any like services any support that you get from the union like because of the type of content that you're working in and if not should there be services like that um that's a that's an interesting question also uh they do occasionally hold kind of mental wellness workshops, not specifically tailored to, you know, people working in true crime, but just everyday operations of post, no matter what you're working on, can be a real grind. I mean, you're often sitting in a room by yourself for 10 hours a day in the dark, you know, Mm -hmm. with no windows. Um, It can be really hard to kind of stay healthy and make sure you're moving enough. So the union does kind of occasionally hold workshops about wellness and uh, time and stress management. And they'll occasionally bring in people kind of like life coaches to help with, yeah, kind of the stresses of it. Mm -hmm. When you Mm -hmm. left the first 48 and went to House Hunters, was that by choice or was there like a need there that that prompted that move? Um, well, those two, those two things weren't uh, close together. I had done a couple shows in between and, and made the move from New York to L.A. in between. Okay. Um, but 
I always have to actively try to diversify my resume because it is so easy to just get pigeonholed into doing the same kind of show over and over again. Mm -hmm. So when I am actively looking for work, I always try to apply to types of things that I haven't done before. It can be really hard to be considered for that stuff in the first place. But as long as the job post doesn't exclusively say like, only apply if you've worked on a male skewing uh, fishing adventure show before, <laughs> which is like not, not an exaggeration. You know, as long as they don't say, like, specifically say like, don't bother me unless you have these credits, like I'll usually give it a shot because you never know. Mm-hmm. Does it like does it really require that big of a difference in people to work on one kind of show as compared to another? Well, that's the kind of the great frustration, right? Is um, the skill set that you're using is the same? You know, as an editor, you know your job is to have a really great sense of emotion and tension and figuring out what the right mood is when you're selecting music and all of the all of the tools in your toolkit are the same you know you're picking out the clearest uh lines of dialogue that tell the story you're picking out the best reaction shots that are generating the kind of emotion that you're looking for but i think stuff just moves so fast and no one really wants to take a lot of risks on who they bring in for things just because there's not a lot of time to have a learning curve. So that's why it can be hard to, to break out, but as someone who can be looking for a job, it can definitely get frustrating. Um, You know, like the Bravo credits thing is like a big kind of inside joke in the post community because they, you know, every Bravo show is like only apply if you already have Bravo credits, right? Because they're kind of notoriously difficult to work for um, Mm -hmm. because they just give ridiculous amounts of notes and apparently they're very harsh in their notes so they kind of only ever want to hire people that are that have done that before and it's like well shouldn't you guys just keep like a rolodex of editors that have like already worked on bravo shows and just save everyone a lot of time <laughs> <laughs> so have you worked for bravo i have not and i don't really want to it sounds terrible <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's take a look at the clip that you sent over. I'm going to share share this screen here. These crimes are unique. Murders committed by siblings. It took the two twins together to create this evil pact. He and his brother gravitate and feed off of one another. How could he even think that he could talk his sister into doing this? And she did it. I don't think it mattered what home they came from or what neighborhood they were raised in. These people were psychotic. The Stovall brothers. The Bondurant twins. The Carr brothers. The Gustafson siblings. There was no doubt in my mind they would have shot me. She did not deserve what she got. You just want to tell the victims that they're not forgotten. After all the brutality, 
there was a golden ray of light. Her surviving was the thing they didn't count on. We can't help it. We don't want to be there. The people with the best motive had the best alibi. The puzzle pieces started coming together. They ended up getting life in prison plus 896 years. We needed to get them off the street or someone else was going to die. The siblings who killed. There's a special place in hell for them. So is this um is this a real like a true crime sort of show or is this kind of fictional? Yeah, all the stories are real. Um and each episode talks about one case basically. So uh that was the trailer for season one, which premiered last October, we did 10 episodes. Um, and th- that was the bulk of my year last year. I worked on that show from April to November. And it was my first time being a lead editor as well. So it was kind of a big deal for me. And I I didn't actually cut that trailer <laughs> because... I'm very resistant to doing anything that's like very flashy. It's just not my style. So teasers and things usually get thrown to somebody else. Um, but I, I, I did work on all 10 episodes of the season as the, as the lead, I ended up finishing most of them and I'm, I'm pretty proud of the final product and we're getting a second season, which will be starting in the spring. So I'm looking forward to going back to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes, they're all real. All the stories are real. Okay. You just said something interesting, which which is like flashy isn't your style. So you don't do teasers. Never <laughs> heard that before. <laughs> like I didn't realize that would be an option for an editor. Like it doesn't everybody have to produce the most flashy appealing content possible? Like was it what so well you can't always opt out and you know part of being a good editor at the end of the day is being able to adapt to what people are asking for, whether whether it's the producer or the network, ultimately you have to deliver um, what they want. But it's just not my natural inclination. Like I tend to lean very subtle. Um, A lot of the notes, my typical notes are that something is either too subtle or too smart. And I kind of have to make things a little more heavy-handed. What does too smart mean? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So subtle would be like something that's just more like fluid, um, less jumpy. I mean, uh, sound design is probably the easiest example. Um, You know, usually you especially in documentary unscripted reality storytelling, you always want to kind of use your sound design almost as punctuation. Mm. So if something important has just happened, you probably want to add a hit or a sting and accompanied, you know, paired with a reaction shot usually um, to kind of emphasize it. And I left to my own devices um, I usually go with just the more subtle options, you know, just the stuff that's not as loud 
or not as in your face. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of, I trust the audience more than the average <laughs> network executive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that that's an interesting, that's an interesting like idea. And it, yeah. it sounds really attractive to me personally. Just I'm, I have two kids, they're young and, and we have the, those those muffs that you put on their ears to kind of cancel sound because they both mm-hmm. kind of entered the stage where like all of this music, especially when they go to like school or to an event, everything is so loud and like trying to get your attention that it's yeah. like, overstimulating. Like it's it's too much. Um so you and I, I don't want to assume, but it sounds like you like to provide content that doesn't like put everything in your face all the time yeah i just don't like to like beat people over the head with things um you know i kind of i think most people are smarter than we give them credit for and especially when they're tuning into a story you know as long as it's told well and it's told clearly Mm -hmm. um they don't need to really be told like when they should be reacting to things mm-hmm. you're not i'm not ever pumping in the uh the laughter from who knows where do they still do those in shows laugh tracks oh yeah sure i mean uh, if you watch if you watch any like i mean big bang theory just ended but stuff like the old like chuck lorry like multi-cam sitcoms they definitely <laughs> still they're there's laugh track happening there. I need to put a laugh track in right now, like in the podcast, <laughs> in post production. Yeah. So you're working fine, fine young criminals. Yeah. Was that-, that was um, that show was kind of a, a lighter flavor of true crime. Like there weren't really any murders happening, um, but each episode was about a a person or group of people who had were committing crimes in their teen years and kind of the arc of each episode would be how they've kind of turned their lives around since. Um, But it was mostly like money-making schemes. It wasn't anything too uh, gory. Mm and I actually worked on that show in Atlanta with probably one of the best crews that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Everyone was just super pleasant and had a great sense of humor and was good at their job, which is like the Venn diagram of those things usually <laughs> do not intersect that much. And that was for Vice, and it was the first time that Vice was hiring a third-party production company to produce a show for them instead of doing it internally. Um, And even though we finished it in March of last year, it still hasn't aired, which is really frustrating because it's probably one of the best things I've ever done. They gave us a lot of creative freedom editorially and we all just had like just so much fun with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was, that was also a 10 episode season and episodes three and 10, I ended up cutting probably 90% by myself. 
um, just because of how the schedule shook out. And then I, I ha- also had hands on a bunch of others. But yeah, I, I loved it. I hope it sees the light of day someday because it's, it's a really fun show. Yeah. Why would, I mean, why would they pay everybody to make it and then not put it on the air? Well, of course, at the time that we were in post, um, Vice was going through a lot of kind of financial turmoil. They were restructuring. They got a new uh, CEO. They laid off like 20% of their staff. So I kind of have the suspicion that they're maybe shopping it around to other platforms and trying to like sell it. But I can't say for sure. I don't have like an inside hook on that, unfortunately. So that's interesting. So this sounds like there's multiple ways for companies like that to make money. Yeah. So what is the typical turnaround time between when you edit when something is shot, when you edit it, and then it goes on TV? Oh man, um, it can vary a lot. I would say most most edit schedules for an unscripted kind of docu-series like the stuff that I'm that I'm mostly doing now is between anywhere between eight to 12 weeks um and it can really depend like either everything will be shot in advance or uh you're starting out with partial footage and um you know, especially if there's recreations involved, uh, you know, we'll usually focus on getting the story chunked out first and then based on, you know, kind of the paper edit, then they'll base what they're going to shoot, which recreations they're going to shoot and what they're going to look like off of that, you know, off of the version of the story that we've decided to tell. And then, you know, sometimes you have to get pickups or additional interviews. Um, so that stuff will come in later. It really depends. It's really like a, a case-by-case situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess that is a big difference between scripted and unscripted. Like you're literally entering into a project and you don't know exactly what the arc is going to be, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why I really fell in love with with doing documentary and unscripted is, you know, the, I feel like especially more so in LA than New York, a lot of people I work with secretly want to switch to scripted. Um, that's kind of always seen as like, you know, the best you can do, the highest you can go. And I'm really happy doing what I'm doing because I love crafting the story in the editing room. Like mm-hmm. I kind of love the the puzzle aspect of it and um, the fact that it's a much more writerly position than if you're working on something that was scripted and really your job boils down to, you know, selecting the best take of a performance. Right. I mean, not to like oversimplify, but, you know, the, the role is, is very, very different. Uh-huh, uh-huh. When you're when you're setting out to find like to find that arc, do you do you find like the capstone piece and say, okay, this is where I'm going and just make everything work from there? What kind of what is what is the way that you work through the footage? 
If I'm given enough time, I really like to watch everything. And, you know, whether you're an editor or a story producer, you have to have a really, really sharp mind when it comes to details. And, you know, I, I don't want to say I have a photographic memory, but I'm like, I'm one of those people that can see or hear something once and, you know, I can kind of store it away and remember that it's there. And if I need to go back to it, I'm like, I know this exists, you uh-huh. know, and, and then I can find it again. So I, I prefer, as long as I have the time to kind of absorb everything that I have as a whole. And then it's kind of a process of just whittling away down to the best parts that, you know, tell the story that you want to tell most clearly. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that you bring up the, the memory thing. Do you feel like, uh, just personally, like I feel like I have that same kind of memory when it comes to video footage and audio and like mm-hmm. where I place my keys when I come in the room. But I have a horrible like actual memory. Like I can't remember what I did last week and I can't like envision what uh, my goals for the next, you know, what life is going to look like 10 years from now. I have no idea. Like, yeah. so the, and there's a word for that. There's like uh, when you can't create pictures in your mind, um, I forget what it's called. But so what, what other ways does your mind work that maybe, you know, is unique to, to you finding your role as an editor? And the, the attention to detail is a big part of it. Um, having a really being, really being able to kind of read people's faces and uh, because in unscripted, you're also, you end up repurposing things a lot, um, you know, and it, it all go, it all boils down to like very Eisenstein montage theory practices. You know, you, when you're looking at someone's face in a moment of reality, you have to be able to judge, you know, whether the expression on their face is going to read the way that you want it to read for the story, the type of story that you're telling, right? So being able to pick up on those kinds of nuances is really important. I feel like I am only organized within my Avid projects. Like my, <laughs> my, my bins and my sequences are the only area of my life where I am like a super neat person um and that's but it's really really important when you're sharing edits uh which is more and more common just because you know we always have less and less time to do things you know i i've worked with editors where you know you open up their sequence and you just you can't make heads or tails of it like there's no, there's just no way that a person who doesn't have that brain could kind of dissect what's happening there. And that makes it really difficult, you know, if you've been saddled with doing notes on someone else's edit, you know, which is something that happens all the time. So yeah, I always, I always like to keep 
my sequences and my binge just like super clean and organized. When I was leading for the first time last year, I was in charge of you know how the how the projects were getting organized and kind of leading people through how to share their edits and stuff and it, the the analogy that i kept throwing to was like if you if you got hit by a truck right and you know we're, so if something were to happen where you would never be able to come back to the office and work on this again you know, like somebody else needs to be able to know where your most recent work is and, you know, be able to take it apart if they need to and do notes on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when, when you're working with a variety of creative personalities, there's an equally wide variety of how organized people are. <laughs> I would love to see just like a screenshot of your filing, like your system inside Avid. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had other editors like basically crib my system. I wish I had a screen grab of that for you. I might be able to find a document that I made um, when we were setting up killer siblings last year and email that to you. Maybe what is like um, like an A, B, C, do this, do this, do this for your file structure that you always do? Uh, the name of the game is duplication for me. I mean, I think when you're sharing an edit, the first thing that you should do every day, like as soon as you get into the office before you do anything, is duplicate the sequence put yesterday's sequence into an old bin and then, you know, update the new sequence with today's date and your initials. So that way, you know, people always know this is the last time it was worked on and this is who worked on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if there's any, if there's any questions, you know, you're able to go to that person and say, you know, can you help me figure this out? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh man, I want to go. That's one thing. That one of it, I have like ten of these episodes recorded, right? And I haven't edited any of them. But I started now, but I hadn't edited any of them. And I had this really scary moment when I thought that I had lost like half of the footage, right? So I, I found it and then immediately had to clean out my hard drive and like get everything super organized. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is never going to happen again. Probably deleted like two terabytes worth of stuff i'm not kidding like (laughs) there's a fine line right between being like a footage pack rat and like an archivist of like a responsible archivist yeah i also never throw anything out so (laughs) (laughs) how do you do that like how do you do you just always buying extra hard drives do you trust the cloud like oh my gosh oh man yeah, it can occasionally be a problem, like especially if uh, if a project file is getting too large and it takes you know fifteen minutes just to open it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the point where you probably have to take your old bins and your old sequences and store them in maybe like just a backup project. But I still would never delete anything because you never you really never know when 
the network is going to be like, just, you know, go back to the way this scene was cut before. And maybe Mm -hmm. that was months ago, you know, and you want to be able to pull that up rather Mm -hmm. than having to try to recreate it from memory. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That'd be a nightmare. So what is maybe like the hardest thing that you ever had to do in your career or like in an edit? Hmm. I'm actually, I'm having a pretty hard time at the job I'm doing right now, which I won't name, (laughs) but a lot of, a lot of what I really struggle with is generated from working, um, having to work with other people and, you know, deal, you're dealing with a lot of different personalities and um, the show that I'm working on right now particularly has a lot of kind of male egos swirling around and competing with each other. And it, it results in a lot of what I call manufactured chaos. You know, like things, things don't have to be as difficult as they are, but because there's so much mismanagement at the top all that stuff kind of trickles down um to make our jobs a lot harder than they need to be you know like i'll i've been in situations in the last couple of weeks where it's like okay we need you to do two we need you to do notes on two acts in three hours because we're gonna screen this with the owners of the company and you know it has to look perfect like that creating a situation like that is just a a recipe for disaster (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know not not to say that you know it's it's funny someone just shared a a meme on and like one of my groups on facebook um uh, and it says something like you know when I said I could work under pressure, I didn't mean that I would kill myself for your company, you know? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Like, like I can get things done in a stressful environment and I can get them done quickly, but I also don't appreciate like being set up to fail. Right. Which, you know, when, when just impossible situations like these are generated because of, a, a lack of planning or just poor management uh, getting blamed for stuff you know that is not your fault is always difficult yeah. so running running into situations like that has always been the hardest part of the job for me is that really prevalent you think in the industry it can be you know i've i've worked with like i said some really really wonderful teams and then I've worked with, or even one-on-one, like I've worked with some really wonderful people and then I've worked with some really, really difficult people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really never know like how it's going to go. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a toss up. You never know what you're going to get. It can mm-hmm. be great. It can be terrible. It can be, you know, somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good that you can recognize that though, like that that if you're in a bad situation and they're telling you like, Hey, this is your fault or Hey, you need to do this. Or like, at least that you can recognize that it's not you. It's them. Like, 
I remember there was one of the first jobs I took after college. I remember going to this guy's office and it was in the legal field serving summons and um, it's just kind of like a bad job in the first place. Who wants to do that? Um, in the interview, he literally said like, I need you to know that in this office, like shit rolls downhill and I need right. to know if you can handle it. And I said, yes, like, of course I, I said, well, I think I said, I don't understand what you mean, but absolutely I can handle anything. Cause I thought like I was a big deal and nobody had ever treated me poorly. And I just, I had no idea what it was in for. And it was the worst career experience of my life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wound up like, I think I quit the day I think it was Christmas day because he made me come in and work on Christmas day wow and um I just it was devastating internally because like I thought it was me I didn't have the the context Mm -hmm. to realize that that was this was this guy and like I was allowing myself to be in that position so yeah I had to have responsibility for myself but at the same time like it's not you that creates that hostile environment yeah Um, I think a lot of people need to realize that, you know. Yeah, especially um, younger people who, you know, just have less experience to to base, you know, their decisions off of. I mean, I, I've definitely, 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 when I was younger, um, I worked for some people who were just like flat out emotionally abusive people. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't kind of have the the work experience to recognize the situation that I was in at the time. Um, But, you know, being older now and having worked in a lot more different types of situations, now I'm much better at kind of seeing it. And um, you definitely do have to be comfortable with standing up for yourself and advocating for yourself um, because there are plenty of people out there who will take advantage um, and kind of just push you as far as you're willing to go Mm -hmm. um, to the point of, you know, compromising your own health and safety and an important realization to make as well is like at the end of the day, it's a stupid TV show, you know, like th- this is something that someone is going to put on while they're eating dinner or washing the dishes and kind of pay half attention to. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's not important or that you're not providing enjoyment and entertainment and, you know, learning opportunities for an audience. Um but it, it's just not worth killing yourself over. Mm-hmm. So what is some, maybe one or two ways that if somebody's in that situation right now and they've never been through this before, like what can they do to stand up for themselves or to, to protect themselves? Um, I would say be really mindful of your hours, especially. Um, never, just don't give a company free work. Um, and you just have to be good about verbalizing, you know, like if you're given a task saying like, this is how long this is going to take me. And, you know, that's the way it is. And, you know, if you're, if you feel like you're under a lot of pressure to, 
stay later than you want to stay or I mean anything anything that you don't want to do or is really compromising to you as a person um you know, there's one thing, there's one side where you always want to be a team player and, you know, do what's best for the show. And there's the other side where, you know, you, you also don't want to let yourself be taken advantage of because it hurts everybody. Um, you know, not only does it hurt you, but it also kind of sets the precedent for um, what, the people above you are going to expect from, you know, future people that are going to be in your position down the road, you know? Um, so it's kind of hard to, it's hard to get into this, into the specifics of what to do exactly, but I would just say, um, you know, your health always comes first and that includes your mental health. Um, don't give up free work. You know, you work the hours that you're paid to work and, and that's it. Um, because when you, when you volunteer your time, it hurts everybody. Um, and I don't know, it, it's really hard to, it's really hard to have those, skills without just having the experience and having to learn a lot of things the hard way, unfortunately. Like I've, I've finally learned not to take stuff personally, you know, which I feel like as a creative person is especially difficult. Um, but you know, not, not to, don't take notes personally. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with producers who, who try to kind of like filter notes so that they don't sound as harsh coming straight from the network. And I always tell them like, just, just forward me the email. Like, just let me see the notes unfiltered because then I can actually do a better job of interpreting what it is that this person is actually asking for. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the fact that they might be saying it in like a very mean way um, you can't let that get to you because they don't know you from Adam, you know, all they're just watching a quick time on their phone probably. Um, and you know, making, having gut reactions to it. Mm -hmm. So it has nothing to do with you and you just have to, yeah, try to do your best to rise above that stuff. Not to say that, you know, you should, minimize your own feelings or be dismissive of your own stress level. But it, it's just so many times more often than not, it's, it's not, it's not personal. That's, that's all I mean to say, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's kind of like uh, last week when I was procrastinating on a project, I commented on a friend's Facebook political post, you know, expressed a political opinion and somebody was like, that's an idiotic idea. And I got super mad at my friend for not like defending me to this person I don't even know. Yeah. Um, it sounds like that, but except you can't unfriend like a network. 
<laughs> yeah, we can't have to like go to bed when it's bedtime and wake up in the morning and feel better, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I've kept you like, it's, we're already like 11 minutes over. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about when, while we're still on here? Um, I guess I would also say that if you're, if you're in the beginnings of your career and, um, you're just starting out, I guess just know that most people are willing to help you and, you know, don't be shy about kind of reaching out and asking for help, you know, don't send someone a cold email that, who you don't know from Adam and like ask them for a job. That's not what I mean. But, you know, it, <laughs> most people are, would, are willing to have conversations with you and let you kind of learn from them, whether it's just um, a coffee date or being able to sit in their edit bay or, you know, whatever it, it might look like because everyone had to start somewhere and most people remember that some people are forgotten but most people remember you know what it was like to start um so just don't don't be afraid to ask mm -hmm. is what i would say mm -hmm. okay yeah. and what are what are you looking forward to maybe the next steps in your career um, I'm really looking forward to Killer Sibling season two. You know, now that we kind of know what the network wants, the second season should go a lot smoother than the first season. And I'm just really excited to take it to the next level and also, you know, have the opportunity to to lead a team again. That was a really great learning experience for me. Um so um, um, that should start in the next, uh, hopefully, six weeks or so. So I'm excited to go back to that. And then beyond that, uh, my aspirations are just to continue to do uh, unscripted work and docu-series work, but just kind of... Uh, kind of raising the bar on the type of project that I get to do. Um, you know, I would love to do something that's, that's kind of higher profile, whether it's like, I really love a lot of the series, um, that Netflix has been putting out lately. You know, I'm always looking to step outside the true crime genre and kind of flex my muscles there. Yeah. That's kind of, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's kind of, it. that's, that's very, very broad, but yeah. Nice. Well, you know, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And um, I feel like I've learned a lot. I hope other people have learned a lot. And really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was nice. Thanks for watching. I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this week's episode, give us a like, leave us a question or a comment, and share with your friends. Your viewership and support helps promote women working in film. Follow us on Instagram, subscribe to us on YouTube, and join our Patreon community. Interested in being a guest or sponsor on the show? Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. See you next week on Women in Post.